This week on Geek Explained, 30 years ago, Superman died. We all know the story. But what if I told you the same story actually happened five years earlier in, of all places, a pro wrestling ring? Join me as I look back on the death and return of Superman through the lens of Japanese wrestling legend Antonio Inoki. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is a little something different for the podcast. Uh, we've been putting this podcast on for almost five years as I'm recording this, and I have been searching for years for an opportunity to combine my two loves of comic books and pro wrestling on the podcast. And this week, we are doing it because we've got a couple things that have happened uh, recently that happen to coincide with each other. Uh, unfortunately, the passing of wrestling legend Antonio Inoki, probably the most prolific wrestler of all time to hail from Japan, alongside the 30th anniversary of the death and return of Superman. And the more you look into Antonio Inoki's career as a pro wrestler, his uh, philanthropic work, really just his all-star celebrity status as a public figure in Japan, there were some interesting correlations that you could make with the character of Superman. So, this week, I'm going to dive into and celebrate the death and return of Superman for its 30th anniversary and look at it through the lens of one of the most important character debuts of all time and what that meant for the life and times of pro wrestling legend Antonio Inoki. We also have, of course, this week's comics countdown where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, so make sure you stay tuned after the jump for that. But for now, let's roll on right into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as we celebrate 30 years of the death and return of Superman, as well as the legendary life and career of Antonio Inoki. Doomed planet. Desperate scientists. Last hope. Kindly couple, Superman. These words have embodied the character of Superman since 1938 when he made his debut in Action Comics number one. And for decades, Superman has been the beacon of hope and justice in not only DC Comics, but all of comic books as a medium. Superman is everywhere. He is one of the most recognizable 
characters, fictional or otherwise, in all of media in the entire world. You can throw up the Superman shield and people will know not only what that is, but what the character represents. And at this stage in kind of the golden era of superhero media, Superman's everywhere. And the stories that Superman has accrued over the years in the pages of comic books as part of the flagship, I want to say, Trinity, you can you can probably say, of him, Batman, and Wonder Woman being kind of the premier characters. Though, I guess in recent years, you could also chalk up Nightwing and Harley Quinn at this point as kind of a, uh, a quintet heading uh, DC Comics. Superman is well-known, and most of his stories are just as well-known. And one story, in particular, is celebrating its 30th anniversary, that being the death and return of Superman. Now, 30 years ago, in 1992, the year I was born, (laughs) I can't, we're having a lot of... 30-year anniversaries for things, and it's kind of, it's blowing my mind. But 30 years ago, Superman died in the pages of DC Comics. And it's interesting when you look at the building blocks. If you break it down into the same kind of four tenets of Superman, the Doom Planet, yada, yada, yada. If you look at the death and return of Superman, let me spell this out for you with those components. We have a shining hero, an indestructible monster, a city in ruins, and a hero falls. But that doesn't just describe the death of Superman. It actually also describes an incident five years prior in the world of pro wrestling, specifically in New Japan pro wrestling. I am going to tell you the story of the death of Superman and how it equates, correlates, and honestly, weirdly parallels the story of Antonio Inoki and the debut of Big Van Vader. Now, I think it's probably uh, good practice to go through the death of Superman first to set the stage and why this story was so important. Um, Obviously, Superman at this point in 1992, had been around for decades. He had been around for over 50 years at this point. And he was everywhere. Superman was marketable. Superman was one of the most well-known fictional characters in the world. He had several films of varying quality. Uh, People knew him. They knew his name. They knew what he stood for. Uh, He had all kinds of different multimedia adaptations with video games on the horizon. We've got uh, cartoons that were coming out soon, the movies, obviously, and he had a lot of marketability, a lot of crossover appeal. He famously, in a comic book, fought to a standstill with Muhammad Ali. Save that for a second. That's a tool we'll be using for later. Superman was an icon, and had established himself as one of the premier comic book characters of all time, because he was the first. But being the first also meant that he had been around the longest, and when you are a comic book character around for a, let's just say, fair amount of time, at this point, Superman had been around for 54 years, if you can believe it, 
things were starting to get a little stale, we'll say. Superman had been kind of treading water for a bit. There had been attempts to shake him up. Uh, He had his fun Silver Age adventures that got a little kooky, a little fun, turned him into the big blue Boy Scout rather than the... You know, a you know, champion of the oppressed, the fighter for social justice. As an aside, one of my favorite episodes we've ever done on this podcast, Superman, A History of Social Justice, is an episode that you can go back where I recount the entire history of Superman from his creation all the way up to modern day and how he has been, as people like to say, a quote-unquote ju- social justice warrior fighting against oppression for decades. So go check that out. I'm super proud of the research I did for that, and I love that episode to death. This time, as the 90s were really kicking on, Superman had been struggling as of late. The 1985 Crisis on Infinite Earths reboot meant to shake up the DC Comics landscape by doing kind of a soft reboot, aligning a lot of... um, a lot of continuities, lining up backstories, and giving specifically Superman the opportunity to reset. No longer was he the pre-crisis Superman who could literally do anything and everything he want. In John Byrne's Man of Steel, they reset his origin, telling a, at the time, modern version of the classic Superman story Paring down his supporting cast, getting rid of Supergirl, and really limiting the power set that he had to the power set that I think we're all more familiar with nowadays. And it didn't really do a great job in making him the premier character again. They tried their best, and it wasn't for lack of trying. However, with things going on in the world, sales began to dip for Superman, and this was due to a lot of factors, but I would say, most of all, there was a shift in the comic book landscape, a shift in what consumers were wanting to pick up. This was during the period of the rise of the anti-hero, with characters like Lobo, Deadpool, Cable, uh, all of these characters, Image was really starting to kick off, the X-Men filled with Characters of varying moral quality uh, were making Superman feel outdated. This was a marked decline in the traditional good guy doing good things for good reasons. And this was a period when it was kind of lame to be good. Now... This wasn't what directly led into the death of Superman. That actually had to do with a little TV show called Lois and Clark. Now, Lois and Clark, The Avengers of Superman, was a 90s cartoon. Well, not cartoon, though. You would be forgiven for looking back on it now and not thinking that's basically a live-action cartoon. Uh, This was our Superman and Lois of the day. This featured Dean Kane and Terry Hatchett in the title roles putting more of a focus on the romance aspect of Superman and Lois, really giving them not just stories where Superman could fight against, you know, the villain of the week, but also dealing with romance drama, dealing with all of the kind of, you know, will-they-won't-they love stuff that you would get in a lot of 90s sitcoms or, you know, primetime television. And Lois and Clark was... A hit. It was everywhere. It was one of the first big superhero, 
you know, television shows to really capture the public eye since probably Batman, the Adam West version. And this show was so globally well-received that it was starting to impact the comics that it was adapting. In the comics at this point, uh, Clark had officially proposed to Lois Lane, and they were going to get married, and this was going to be a, you know, a gigantic, monumental comic book event. However, when the writer's room and the showrunners found out about the upcoming nuptials in the comic books, they went to DC Comics and said, that is going to mess with our show. Because a big part of our show is the will they, won't they, you know, love, romance, drama that we infuse into the core of our show. And if in the comics, oh, they're married, people are going to know how this ends, which is hilarious to think about. But at the time, it made sense from a, you know, television standpoint, we'll say. Now... DC Comics was put in kind of a quandary here because they were now forced to postpone this year-long story of leading up to the wedding and, you know, tying the knot between these two characters who had been intertwined for decades. And they needed to figure out an entire year's worth of storytelling so that they could now align with the TV show that had just done an episode where Clark proposed to Lois, and now they were going to kick off their whole run-up to their own wedding on the show. So at a Superman summit, which were commonplace at the time and usually did not equate to a whole lot, not a lot got done, it was a lot of screaming and uh, fighting story for story, tooth and nail until one person was left standing, a Superman summit was called to try and figure out what they could do for a year. And Dan Jurgens, who had been throwing this idea, sometimes as a joke, sometimes not, tossed up the idea, why don't we kill him? And unlike previous instances of Dan positing this possibility and him being laughed out of the room, the room was silent. And everyone slowly began to murmur. And they said, you know what? Let's kill him. Not just to pass time. Not just because, you know what, people have been taking this character for granted. Let's just off him. They wanted to show not just comic book readers, but the world. Why the character mattered and why it would mean something if they found themselves in a world without a Superman. Unfortunately, this did mean that certain other plans had to be shifted around. There was a notorious uh, Neil Gaiman and Matt Wagner story that they were crafting for Superman, which did involve him being killed as well. And unfortunately, this story was shelved. I don't know a whole lot about that story, but I mean, you've got Neil Gaiman and Matt Wagner. It would have been an all-timer for sure. However, they got to work quickly to tell a year-long tale that they would entitle The Death and Return of Superman. Now, the writers involved in this story were Dan Jurgens, obviously, alongside the other Superman writers. At this point, I believe there were three or four different Superman books going on, and so we had Dan Jurgens, Louis Simonson, Roger Stern, Jerry Ordway, Carl Kessel, William Messner-Lobes, and Gerard Jones. When it came to artists... 
It's a murderer's row of incredible talent. They had John Bognavo, Bog, Bogdanov, Tom Drummond, Jackson Geis, Dan Jurgens, pulling double duty, Dennis Junk, Dennis Rodier, Walt Simonson, Kurt Swan, and M.D. Bright. And helming this all, steering the ship as editor, we had Mike Carlin. Now, they decided, look, we're going to kill Superman, but we don't want to just have somebody who he's been fighting for years upon decades just get a lucky shot on him. We need to create something new. We need to create something that people haven't seen before that when you introduce it into a comic book, a reader looks at that and says, oh yeah, that could kill Superman. Soups could be in trouble here. So they began the process of creating a brand new character, a brand new villain to fight against Superman and to be the unstoppable force to Superman's immovable object. And so they went to work. They started crafting a character who had to be bulky. He had to be large. He had to be physically imposing to stand up against the Man of Steel. He had to have an indestructible skin and perhaps bony protrusions to pierce into the flesh of the Kryptonian. And as the design began to come together, a name was chosen due to, on one of the concept arts, someone writing Doomsday for Superman as a, let's say, thesis statement on what the character meant. He was created solely to kill the Man of Steel, and looking at that tagline, they decided this character would be named Doomsday. Now, they didn't just come up with this very jagged design on their own. They decided to take the most popular company in comics at the time, Image Comics, which had just kicked off with some of the hottest talent in the comic book industry, and decided to take what people like about that and use it for this character. They wanted to tell the story that was happening in the real world. Image Comics was killing DC Comics when it came to sales. So they decided, why not have the representative of Image Comics kill Superman? Now, after they had decided what they were going to do, how they were going to do it, it came down to doing the deed. The event of all events. The buildup to this comic had been legendary and people will talk about it to this day having comics show at the very back as a post-credit scene now that we are familiar with the practice nowadays a fist punching against rock something trying to break out and then showing a bloody superman symbol with the caption doomsday is coming and in 1992, Doomsday arrived. A four-issue arc showing the awakening of Doomsday. This creature, originally seen in a containment suit that would belie his appearance to outward observers. Awakening, rising out of the ground in the midst of the JLI. Now, the JLI, many people know, the Justice League International, the Bwahaha era of the Justice League, the Scrub era of Justice League, many will say. The JLI is one of my personal favorite rosters in Justice League history, and 
Everybody knew that. Everybody knew that the JLI were widely popular, having revived the Justice League concept from pretty much nothing. And they decided, we're going to take this team that people love and offer them up as sacrificial lambs to show just how much this guy means business. Doomsday wrecks the entire JLI, eventually punching Booster Gold so hard he flies up into the atmosphere before being caught by a passerby. That passerby being Superman. And Booster Gold giving the famous line, It feels like Doomsday is here. Superman engages this monster and originally seems like he's doing okay. This is another large hulking beast, nothing Clark hasn't fought before. Though Clark stops just short of killing this thing and is able to escape. And then, I shit you not, as it is recovering from this initial bout with Superman, it travels to a local town and sees on TV that a local pro wrestling competition is being held to decide the toughest pro wrestler in all of Metropolis. Now, Doomsday, I should mention, has been designed in this story to be a killing machine. It is singular purpose. I go to where the strongest thing is and I kill it. Seeing this pro wrestling advertisement and all of these powerful warriors fighting to find out who's the best obviously aligns with Doomsday's programming. If all the best warriors are there and I need to kill the best warriors, that's where I need to go. So Doomsday begins making his way to Metropolis and arrives on the scene having carved a path of destruction through the United States just to get to this city. And who does he find waiting for him in the city? Superman. Doomsday versus Superman. The climactic battle. Issue 4 of this four-issue arc is incredible. Filled with full-page to double-page splashes that show just how titanic this fight is. Punches that rattle buildings kicks and body slams that crack the streets below and it feels like truly this is the end times for metropolis but in superman number 75 released on november 18th of 1992 the fight ends superman and doomsday having fought to exhaustion wind up for one last punch Superman doesn't know what he's in for here. He's never fought against something that could hurt him the way this thing has hurt him. Similarly, Doomsday, as a simple-minded, at this point, singular-focused machine, is giving every single ounce of what it has to kill the unkillable. And with one final mighty blow, silence. Doomsday seemingly killed, and Superman, in the arms of his beloved Lois Lane, dies. This was incredible. This was monumental. Superman, killed, was unthinkable. The idea of it 
had never been done before. Of course, there had been imaginary stories, aren't they all? But this is real. This happened. All the other DC books noticed this. They took this into account. Superman was gone. And it didn't just affect the DC universe. The media attention of the death of Superman was unlike anything we had seen before in comic books. News outlets covered this. We had late night talk show hosts giving their take on the death of a fictional character. The death of Superman was felt worldwide. Whether you were a comic fan or not, you knew about the death of Superman. This was unheard of. This was unprecedented. And it led into an unprecedented time. This led directly into the comic story Funeral for a Friend, one of my favorite Superman stories of all time that doesn't feature Superman, where the world knows that it has changed forever. Not only because Superman has died, but now there is something that can kill Superman. What hope do we have for the rest of us? This led directly into the reign of the Superman, as we saw three pretenders to the crown arrive in the form of the Eradicator, Cyborg Superman, and Super... I'm sorry, the Metropolis Kid. This led into a fairly lengthy story of the three jockeying for position alongside a fourth, pretty clearly not Superman, Steel known at that time as the Man of Steel. Now, these four faces of Superman came together as part of a way to lengthen the story, because once DC Comics caught wind of how successful the death of Superman was, it was they were off to the races. We gotta keep this period of him being dead going. So they constructed the reign of the Superman, which saw all four aspects of Superman clashing, ultimately leading to the return of Superman, mullet and all, in the black solar suit as he arrived to do battle with Cyborg Superman, who had been revealed to be a maniacal Hank Henshaw, a Reed Richards pastiche that had been dormant in comics for quite some time. Superman was able to finally return and take his place again fairly quickly, and within a year was able to marry the love of his life, Lois Lane. But this wasn't the end of the story. Superman had been killed by Doomsday. And yes, of course, Superman came back, but Doomsday wasn't done with him. We found out in the story Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey that following the death of Superman, Doomsday's supposedly lifeless body was strapped to an asteroid and launched into deep space, hopefully never to be seen again. However... Eventually, a deep space crew from a far-off alien planet found this asteroid, and Doomsday woke up, fought his way across the universe, back to Earth to try and kill Superman. And in this story, written by Dan Jurgens, with art also by Dan Jurgens and Brett Breeding, the rematch occurred, where Superman was able to finally beat doomsday once and for all ending the threat for now and proving that he was back as the main power in the dc universe the hierarchy of power 
in the DC universe had been restored. Everybody knows the story. Maybe not Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey, but everyone knows the story of the death and return of Superman. But a very similar story happened five years ago in Japan in the pro wrestling company New Japan Pro Wrestling with one Antonio Anoki. Now, I know what you're thinking. Eric, I am an adult. I am a connoisseur of comic books. I do not have time for your childish pro wrestling. But what I will say to you, stick around. There is a lot of shared DNA when it comes to pro wrestling and comic books. Both utilize storytelling on several different levels and have varying degrees of storylines. They can be comedic. They can be dramatic. They can be for all ages. They can be incredibly adult. Each character that you find in both mediums are based around incredible athleticism. Whether it's being able to pull off a 630 centon splash, uh, hoisting someone up for an F5, or picking someone up and throwing them into the sun. Both companies, both genres, both mediums show heroes and villains at the peak physical conditioning, clashing in a battle of good and evil. Each medium, pro wrestling and comic books, showcase icons and legends in each industry. In pro wrestling, you have icons like Sting and Macho Man Randy Savage. In DC Comics, you have legends like Batman and Superman. And each genre, each medium, showcases the best heroes and the worst villains, clashing in a battle of good versus evil, justice versus vengeance, and it's entertaining as hell to experience. Your first comic book will give you the same experience as your first pro wrestling event. The first time I was introduced to pro wrestling was in 1998. I remember very distinctly my dad flipping on an episode of Monday Night Raw, and I saw my first pro wrestler ever, Eddie Guerrero, on his debut night in the WWF alongside the Radicals, hit a frog splash in the main event and break his elbow. (laughs) Which not only told me that this sport, this whatever this was, was incredibly dangerous, that these people were putting their lives on the line for entertainment. And my first comic book, which, I mean... There are too many to think of, but I distinctly remember being introduced to Superman through through Superman the Animated Series as he fought to protect not just himself, but the citizens of Metropolis. Now, I know that pro wrestling could get a bad rap. A lot. And... Rightfully so, just as much as comic books. If you look on Twitter, God forbid, with everything going on right now, you will see the same, we'll say, the same characters weighing in their opinions on comics and pro wrestling, and you'll see a lot of shared DNA. There's a lot of people complaining about the same stuff in both mediums. But for this episode, 
I want you to cast aside your biases. I want you to cast aside your preconceived notions of pro wrestling. And I just want to tell you a story. Not unlike the story that I just told you about the death and return of Superman. And this story takes place in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Now, what is NJPW? I hear you ask. Well, I'm glad you asked because it's actually pertaining to what we're talking about today. New Japan in very, very simplified layman's terms, is the WWE of Japan. It is the main pro wrestling company alongside stuff like uh, Pro Wrestling Noah, Stardom, other companies of the like. New Japan has established itself as the premier Japanese pro wrestling company. All of your favorite stars who are working today have most likely either worked in New Japan or been influenced by New Japan. Uh, it's very interesting when you get into kind of the minutia of the big differences between Western pro wrestling versus Japanese puro resu. Um, I know I butchered that pronunciation, but we're going to move on. Uh, Western pro wrestling obviously has a lot of stigma when it comes to it. Oh, it's fake. Oh, it's dumb. Oh, it's all these things. But even though I think the perspective on pro wrestling has changed a lot in uh, in the past, you know, 10, 15 years since its big heyday in the Attitude Era, and people are starting to look at this more as, you know, what it is, which is an art form, which is performative theater. Uh, it's no more fake than Game of Thrones. And in Japan, they have had that view for decades. Japanese pro wrestlers are revered. Japanese pro wrestlers are treated like celebrities, not unlike sumo wrestlers, not unlike incredible sports athletes, not unlike your favorite J-pop idols. They are treated like legit celebrities and are basically one of the greatest imports and exports of Japan is pro wrestling. And New Japan is the tip of the spear of that Japanese pro wrestling scene. It was founded in January, founded on January 13th in 1972 when the founders, and we'll get to them in a moment, broke away from at the time the biggest company in Japan, Japan Pro Wrestling Alliance or JWA, and established themselves as their own company as well as instituting their own world title. The International Wrestling Grand Prix Heavyweight Championship, or IWGP. And in the very first IWGP match to crown the first ever IWGP Heavyweight Champion, Hulk Hogan, of all people, defeated Antonio Inoki to become the first ever champion of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Fast forward to today. NJPW is one of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, it actually has a streaming service called NJPW World where you can check out back catalogs of their matches, go through uh, storylines, keep up to date with all their current uh, events, whether it's just regular live events or their pay-per-views. And they have both Japanese and English translations. They've got an entirely dedicated English announce team to help foreign wrestling fans like myself keep up to date and understand what's going on. Uh, their biggest show of the year, 
their WrestleMania is called Wrestle Kingdom, and it usually takes place on January 4th every single year. It'll be coming up again this January. Wrestle Kingdom is an incredible time for pro wrestling fans, usually putting on match of the year contenders multiple times in the same night. And NJPW, due to not just its success as a brand, not just a its success in cultivating world-class talent, but also its connections to other companies around the world has gained worldwide popularity. It is very easily the number two, if not number three, company in the world when it comes to pro wrestling. It's always a toss-up. Obviously, WWE, because of its longevity and its reach, is number one. AEW is hot on its tails, even though it's only been around for, I think, four years at this point but njpw has been around since the 70s and it has stayed true to its roots every single decade since yes there were dark times but of course right now as it stands new japan is the standard when it comes to work rate when it comes to incredible matches when it comes to spectacle and when it comes to establishing some of the greatest figures in pro wrestling which brings us to antonio anoki now antonio anoki began wrestling for the jwa at 17 years old and began wrestling under the tutelage of Riki Dozan, who was a Japanese pro wrestling legend at this point. However, shortly into the period of him training underneath Riki Dozan, his mentor was murdered. Due to this, Antonio Inoki began seeking other avenues to enhance his pro wrestling ability obviously this was a tragedy it's terrible and if you want to read about it you can go look up that whole uh that whole ordeal it is wild to think about but antonio anoki began traveling the world to better himself not unlike a certain bruce wayne to grow his abilities and to become the best pro wrestler on the planet and during this period he began developing strong style now, if you're a pro wrestling fan, you know all about Strong Style, but for the uninitiated, Strong Style is a pro wrestling discipline that encourages the use of strikes, submissions, and making everything look stiff as hell. Pro wrestling, in its purest form, is performative art, not unlike theater, not unlike stunt shows, where you are performing moves with your opponent to garner a certain reaction from the audience and to tell a story in the pro wrestling ring. Most of the pro wrestling that you will see, especially when it comes to WWE, the main outlet for people with pro wrestling, is fairly safe. It might not look the safest, but these people put their bodies on the line day in and day out to perform, so they have to be able to do things safely. Strong Style pushes that to the furthest boundary possible without directly trying to hurt your opponent, and in some very specific and... uh not very often instances they cross that line to try and tell the story they want to tell or go into business for themselves but Anoki developed strong style as a way to separate himself not just from other pro wrestlers but to separate his style 
from the rest of the world. He wanted to cultivate strong style as a discipline, not unlike judo, karate, taekwondo, all of the different disciplines of mixed martial arts. And following him establishing not just himself as a wrestler, not just his own wrestling discipline, he founded New Japan Pro Wrestling. That's right. Antonio Inoki founded the company after breaking away from the JWA. And during this and because of this, Inoki found widespread acclaim across Japan. He was everywhere. He was in commercials. He was in uh, public events. He would make appearances at sporting events and celebrations. People knew who Antonio Inoki was. He was a household name in Japan. And due to this, he was able to elevate Puroresu for the wider Japanese audience to elevate it just past, you know, this pastime that people could go if they wanted to see a show, it became an art form. It became a sport. And due to this, Antonio Noki slapped on a moniker to New Japan and the IWGP brand, and that would be the king of sports. Antonio Noki set out to make pro wrestling as revered as any mixed martial arts discipline. How would he do that? By kicking the shit out of the most notable names in those other mixed martial arts disciplines. Antonio Noki was a maniac. He would go and challenge the most popular names of different disciplines to matches in New Japan and body them. He would establish himself as a character. And obviously business was to be done and these people would go in for themselves and they would make a lot of money but what it did was it was allowed to give pro wrestling a stage it hadn't seen before to be taken seriously like mixed martial arts and in no other bigger stage was this the case than in the war of the worlds on june 26th in 1976 where Antonio Noki found himself squaring up across the ring from one Muhammad Ali. That's right. Both Superman and Inoki went toe-to-toe with Muhammad Ali and lived to tell the tale. Now, a lot of what this uh, match that is famous, people know all about this. If you're a pro wrestling fan, you know about the Anoki versus Ali match, uh, which was a boxer in Ali going up, up against a pure striker, someone who used kicks, someone who used grapples in Anoki. And many people look to this as the precursor to what we know today as modern MMA. However, even though Anoki had elevated pro wrestling to a certain standard, to a certain notoriety, NJPW was struggling. It was having a rough time in getting its worldwide acclaim, and it was having a tough time competing with other companies in its same market. This was due to the rise of AJPW, All Japan Pro Wrestling, a starter company that was promoting tougher fights, promoting not just good guys and bad guys, but a moral gray that could, we could say, show and showcase anti-heroes. 
Alongside this, AJPW, due to their uh, connections with Western wrestling companies, were the primary outlet for gaijin wrestlers or non-Japanese wrestlers to make their presence known on the Japanese stage. So famous wrestlers from the US, from the UK, would come to all Japan and put on a show and nowhere else could you see these Western wrestlers then in an AJPW ring, which led to New Japan falling behind. This led Inoki to reassess what was going on in the current business. He knew that he needed to compete with All Japan if he wanted to continue to grow the New Japan brand, but he didn't know how to do it the way that things were. Antonio Inoki had been at the top of New Japan for years, which, yes, you can kind of look at as maybe not, you know... Putting your top star as also the guy who runs your company is a great idea. However, he was the biggest star in all of Japan when it came to pro wrestling. But that didn't mean anything when people were tired of seeing him win all the time. So they realized they needed a new center point. They needed a reset. They needed what we could understand as a soft reboot for the company they needed to get people talking about it again and so Antonio Inoki and his inner circle at New Japan decided let's create a monster now they decided they were going to kill the legend of Antonio Inoki and they needed to make someone who could do it who could take the highest caliber wrestler in their company and bring him as low as he's ever been but this was going to take a team of course Antonio Inoki being the top star he needed to be sacrificed he needed to be put on the altar for this new monstrous creature to come in and destroy so that people would tune in to find out what this thing was, who this guy was that could take out the legendary Antonio Inoki. And Antonio decided he would draw from samurai lore. He needed a dark samurai warrior to come in as a ronin without any allegiance to anyone and destroy a legend. And so he turned to Kiyoshi Nagai, who is a prolific manga artist known for uh, such titles as Mazinger Z, Devilman, and at this time, most recently, had begun work on the Jushin Liger anime, which was, I shit you not, an anime centered around the pro wrestling character of Jushin Thunder Liger. So many Japanese pro wrestlers have shown up in this Jushin Liger anime, it's ridiculous, and is also... Uh, led into the creation of characters like Tiger Mask. So this creator, Kiyoshi Nagai, was very instrumental in the process of New Japan. And so they knew that he was the guy who they needed to get together with and create this character. Alongside them, they turned to a notable figure in Antonio Inoki's inner circle, Masa Saito who is a pro wrestling legend. And they came to him because they knew that he was the guy who could scout talent. He could see someone who would be a legend one day from a mile away, lacing up their boots for the first time. And his input became invaluable in this process. Initially, when Anoki began percolating this idea, he knew he wanted 
two, one of two Western pro wrestlers to fill this role. Either Ultimate Warrior, who is at this point just really hitting his stride in the American circuit before making his way to WWF at the time, or alternatively, Sid Vicious, who at this point had been wrestling in the WWF to, you know, different degrees of success. However, Masa didn't want either of them involved in this because he already had a guy. He knew that to take down Antonio Inoki, he would need someone with a pedigree, someone who could be physically imposing and someone who could believably take out the greatest shadow that loomed over Japanese pro wrestling. And he knew that the only person who he could trust in this role was Leon White. Now, Leon White was a former NFL player in the U.S., uh, specifically for the L.A. Rams, and had also gone to a Super Bowl. Super Bowl, I believe, was 14. And he had, following his football career, began a fairly successful career in the territory system in the U.S. in pro wrestling. He started off in the AWA, the American Wrestling Association, and was given the moniker the Baby Bowl, which is hilarious. And he hated it. He was a hulking man who you would not want to come across in a dark alley. But the Baby Bull moniker didn't really sit well with him. And so when he made his way to the CWA, Catch Wrestling Association, which was steeped and was cultivated in the, uh, in the market of Germany, he was given the much more appropriate name of Bull Power, which, again, is very, very 80s, but it is what it is. Now, as Bull Power... Uh, Leon White tore through the pro wrestling scene in both the U.S. and the U.K. And during a particularly fine performance with the CWA in Germany, he caught the attention of Masao Tiger Hattori. Tiger Hattori is known worldwide for his contributions in Japanese pro wrestling. And Tiger signed off on him and said, we need this guy. Once Masa said, that's the guy I want, and Tiger said, yes, I agree, Inoki knew that he had his monster. However, they did run into a snag, because at the time, White had just signed a contract with the rival All Japan Pro Wrestling to wrestle for them, and not for NJPW. However, due to his connections and the reverence that the pro wrestling scene in Japan had for him, Tiger Hattori was able to broker a deal where AJPW would release uh, White from his contract and allow him to join New Japan for, let's just say, a nominal fee. But now they knew what they wanted to do, now they knew who to do it with, and now they need to build the character around Leon White, which brought together Big Van Vader. Leon White has stated in his autobiography that the idea, the thesis statement behind Big Van Vader was an unstoppable samurai in the ring that would only be stopped by death. Doesn't that sound a little familiar? It might. Now, Big Van Vader was got his name as well as his 
I would say, spirit from a story of a samurai from Japanese folklore. Uh, Wada Yoshimura, in Japanese folklore, defeated the Lord of Hell to open a pathway to heaven for him and his son. And Wada, in certain in certain uh, pronunciations, sounded a lot like Vader, which is also, as a quick side note, also where George Lucas got Vader from. I didn't know that until I was doing the research for this. I think it's wild. Wada, Vader, Wada, also the father. It's, It's crazy. I love it. I love it so much. But now that they had a name, they wanted to develop a backstory. So this character, Big Van Vader, was a feared samurai warrior from an ancient Japanese tribe. And in this time, tribes and villages, whenever they would come across each other, would obviously be in conflict, both for land, for resources. And so they decided that the best way to settle disputes would be to, for each side to send their fiercest warrior to a desert island and have them fight to death. And the winner would return, and that tribe that village would then take the other village's resources vader was an unbeaten samurai warrior who defeated countless other feared warriors until he found himself on a desert island with a warrior who would not submit to him they fought for 72 straight hours and ultimately the duel resulted in both participants dying Now, this story is inspired by the uh, Musashi Miyamoto duel with Sasaki Kojiro uh, on the Ganryujima Island. It's a very famous uh, samurai duel. If you want to look it up, feel free. It's a great, great story. I would recommend checking that out. But now that they had the story behind this character with Vader returning from the pits of hell, killing the Lord of Hell to open a pathway back to a pro wrestling ring of all places... They decided we are going to design a monster. They made sure to put him in a mask, though he didn't originally appear in a mask in his debut appearance, which we will get to. But it wasn't really about his ring gear, so to speak. It was about the entrance. It was about presentation. And his presentation was unlike anything New Japan had seen before. They designed this elephant-like headpiece and shoulder pads getup that would shoot fire and smoke and was designed to look both futuristic and ancient all at once. Vader was a contradiction. He was large, but he could move quickly. He was deceptively swift, but could hit like a truck. And as he walked to the ring, adorned in what... looked like Fallout battle armor long before Fallout was doing its battle armor. He was a terrifying sight to behold. So now New Japan knew what they wanted to do. They knew who they wanted to do it with. Now all that was left to do was to do the deed. And on December 27th in 1987, in the sold-out sumo hall in Tokyo, Japan, the world-famous... Sumo Hall, it was time to kill an icon. Now, I've watched footage of this match multiple times. And the one that I will, I'll link it in the description of this podcast. Uh, It's a daily motion link. And it not only shows the initial clash, but it also shows the lead up, which I think is very important. And the entire video is 
masterfully cut because it starts off not in a wrestling ring, doesn't even start off with any wrestling. It starts off with a commercial. It's Antonio Inoki doing some kind of commercial for, I believe it's an energy drink of some kind, and it sets up that Inoki is a well-known public figure. He's doing commercials with a smile and a jingle. He is the hero of this story. He is the Superman of New Japan and had been the beacon of hope and justice for that company for years. However, this event, which had been centered around Enoki's clash with Riki Choshu, was a spectacle. Because Enoki was putting his two-year winning streak on the line against Riki Choshu, who had been an underhanded villain trying to end Enoki's winning streak in as dastardly a way as possible. And in this footage, you get to see the match between Enoki and Choshu, which ends up not really having a great ending. However, once Enoki defeats Choshu, sound starts to rumble through the sumo hall. Audience members who were originally transfixed on Enoki were now turning their gaze to the entrance ramp. As they watched a monster of a man make his way to the ring. Adorned in the carefully designed armor that made this figure look like a mythological creature. Big Van Vader made his way to the ring and challenged Inoki to a match. Anoki, though he had been through a match already, he was Superman. He had fought 60-minute draws. He had fought multiple opponents at once. There was nothing that Antonio Anoki could not do. And so he accepted the challenge. What happens after this is a five-minute demolition of Antonio Anoki, the wrestling character. As Vader, after stripping the armor off of himself, not unlike how Doomsday stripped off the containment suit, lays in to Antonio Inoki, tossing him from pillar to post, beating him within an inch of his life before sealing it with a running power slam. And as Inoki lay there, Staring up at the lights, Vader goes for the pin. And the legend of Antonio Inoki that had been established since 1972, the birth of New Japan Pro Wrestling. One, two, three seconds later, that legend, as well as that two-year winning streak, was broken. A hero fell and a monster rose to the top of the premier pro wrestling organization in the entire country. In the aftermath of this, as we in the biz call, squash, Antonio Noki was dragged out of the ring, carted away, Vader gloating to this audience. And the audience did not take this well. 
Enoki was an icon. He was a beloved figure in Japan. And to see him be so physically and violently dismantled in front of all of them was a sight that they could not deal with. And so the audience members in attendance took the cushions from which they had been sitting on all night, set them ablaze, and began a riot. These people rioted in the sumo hall in Tokyo, Japan, with police response unable to quell the riot for over an hour. Trash rained down from the ring. Barricades were taken down. Wrestlers, including Vader himself after making his way back to the locker room, were ushered and evacuated from the building due to them not sure them not being sure whether their safety was in question these people wanted blood these people watched their hero fall and they were not going to take it sitting down due to this once the riot was finally calmed down once the uh, perpetrators were taken away and once the dust had settled not unlike Metropolis, following the events of Doomsday's Rampage, the Sumo Hall lie in ruins. And due to this, Sumo Hall banned New Japan from performing in that building for over two years. Media coverage of this was widespread. Antonio Inoki, like we said, was an icon. People knew about his winning streak. People knew how unbeatable he was. People knew what it would take to put someone like him down. And in one night, the reign of Vader began. The debut of this new character, who seemed to be this unbeatable, unstoppable monster, was all anyone was talking about. They had captured the audience looking for dangerous villains in their pro wrestling. They had captured the audience attention who wanted to see gaijin wrestlers in Japan. And in one fell swoop, Vader rose to the top of New Japan and stayed there for years. This reignited interest in NJPW, skyrocketing them back to the premier spot in in Japanese pro wrestling. Vader went on to win the IWGP heavyweight champion Molt championship multiple times with his first reign taking place on april 24th 1989 and through the year following him defeating antonio noki in five minutes just five minutes vader ran through decimating the roster not unlike how doomsday decimated the jli and any other hero that wanted to stop him this led to the rematch. Antonio Inoki, broken, a fallen hero, had to work himself back up. And on July 29th in 1988, in a no disqualification, anything goes grudge match, the two clashed one more time. And it was a barnstormer. This was, as we say in the biz, a slobber knocker, where the two men beat each other from pillar to post at one point with Vader 
getting a gash so large on his arm that he was bleeding all over himself, all over the mat, and all over Inoki. Until Inoki was finally able to defeat Vader via submission. Once again, wresting control of New Japan from Vader, who had been running roughshod over the company, and restoring the hierarchy of power in NJPW back to where it belonged. I think you can see through the comparison of these two stories how similar they are. And it's interesting to me how many people who are in either camp, whether you're a pro wrestling fan or you're a comic book fan, how much they sneer at the other side due to them perceiving them as more childlike when they're telling a lot of the same stories. Of course, the characters are different, the circumstances are different, but pro wrestling is not unlike comic books. Superman and Antonio Inoki would have more rematches with Doomsday and with Vader, respectively. They would continue their careers long past their supposed character deaths. They both achieved icon status long before and long after. In fact, when Antonio Inoki battled Vader one last time in 1996, almost 10 years after they had initially clashed, it was still hailed as one of Inoki's greatest matches of all time. The two men would continue to tell stories in the ring as much as anyone else who had stepped between those ropes. Comic books and wrestling have more shared DNA than you think. They're both stories that continue. Comic books, depending on, you know, what company you're reading, what story you're reading, what character you're reading sometimes, have a continuing story. The continuity matters. In wrestling, it's the same way. You can follow along certain careers, just like a comic book, going through their reboots, their heel turns, some creative teams not knowing what to do with them, and some creative teams creating instant classics. And as the, as the parallels between the two become more, you know, more obvious to people, I think more comparisons like this are going to be made. More parallels between wrestling storylines and comic book storylines are going to be made. We've, for God's sakes, we've had wrestlers come back and write comic books. We've had comic book heroes like Stephen Amell who played Oliver Queen go on to have wrestling matches and they were pretty good comics and pro wrestling share more than you think and it's interesting to me as we look upon current events how much they seem to parallel with each other it's been 30 years since Superman died and almost a month ago to the day, as you are listening to this, Antonio Inoki passed on October 1st of 2022, leaving behind a legacy that he had established for decades and a career that anyone would be lucky to have. He reached superstardom at a fairly young age and was able to herald the Japanese pro wrestling scene to bring it to heights that it hadn't seen before. He was an icon just as much as Superman was. And to see how their stories parallel, of course how their stories differ, 
and how their stories inspire those who get to witness them. It makes you kind of think about just how much pro wrestling and comic books share. So if you're ever, if you're a fan of either one, you're probably a fan of comic books. If you're listening to this podcast, give pro wrestling a shot. I'm always here to give recommendations. I've got a large backlog of matches I could recommend. And I've got friends who are also in the comic book space who love pro wrestling just as much as I do. And if you give it a shot, you might see something special. You might see heroes rise. You might see villains win. And you might see stories that can last a lifetime. When you look at the story of the death of Superman and the debut of Big Van Vader and NJPW, it's easy to see the first act, where the hero falls and the villain stands triumphant. But the most important thing about that story, and the most important thing that I think you can take away from both Superman and Antonio Inoki, is that the hero always gets back up. And the way that they are able to fight from underneath to save the day, to beat the villain, to restore peace and hope in the world is what legends are made of. Superman and Antonio Noki are legends. That is an undeniable fact. And legends live forever. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And there were a lot of contenders last week. There was a lot of good comics, but I had to give it to Judgment Day number six, written by Karen Gillan, art by Valeria Shiti, uh, this book ruled. Judgment Day might go down as one of the best Marvel events since Secret Wars, and that is a very high bar, but I think the way that this was accomplished, the way that it was, um, it, it was able to tell a story that felt like it had consequences without completely upheaving everything that's going on in Marvel right now. Uh, the consequences of this are going to be felt, which I really love. You know I love consequences in my comics, so I would recommend it if you were waiting until it wrapped up. Go over there, check it out. It's six issues. Uh, pick up any tie-ins you want, including the story-critical tie-ins. I let, Can we just do away with the story-critical shit like next time? But that being said, great event. Go check it out. But this week, we've got seven books for you to check out. I know, single digits, what is this? Uh, we're going to kick things off with Dark Knights of Steel number eight. This is written by Tom Taylor with art by Yasmin Putri. Uh, I feel like it's been a minute since we've had a book come out for this series. Uh, we had that tie-in book that was kind of like an anthology story telling other stories in the universe, which is cool. But it's been a while since we had a Dark Knights of Steel mainline book, and I feel like that's going to negatively impact the story and its readership. I still think it's a great story in a great world with incredible art, so definitely pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. 
War of the Three Kingdoms. The battle between the three kingdoms has begun in brutal fashion, and to call the opening salvo anything less than shocking is an understatement. Can the Trinity stop further bloodshed, or has all-out war truly begun? I'm very curious to see what they do here. We've only got a few more issues left of this series, so uh, better jump back in. Next up, I can't believe I'm saying this, it's Deadpool number one! That's right, I have put a Deadpool book on this, but it's because of this creative team. It's written by Alyssa Wong, who is amazing, with art by Martin Cococolo. I probably said that wrong, it's probably Cocholo. Uh, but it's... Uh, I'm very excited about the prospect of this. Alyssa Wong has been doing incredible work most recently with the new Iron Fist book. And I'm very interested to see what she brings to Deadpool. Uh, this is going to be great. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Marvel's top merc is back in business. We all know Wade Wilson is one of the top mercenary slash assassins in the Marvel Universe, even if he is simultaneously the most annoying one. But he's pushing to make that recognition official as he auditions for the elite group known as the Atelier. Now he has 48 hours to kill one of the world's most famous supervillains. Only problem? He's been kidnapped and something strange is growing inside him. Things are about to get gross as writer Alyssa Wong and artist Martin Cocholo, uh, sorry, uh, take out their pent-up aggression on everyone's pizza-faced, jabber-mouthed, misguided, hate-to-love, love-to-hate fave, Deadpool. I think that tells you everything you need to know, so we're going to move on. Uh, we're next up have Batman, number 129, written by Chip Zdarsky, with art by Leonardo Romero and George Jimenez. I have been loving this book. Even more so now with the uh, new backups, the uh, Zuren R Year One is really, really cool. I love the Romero art as much as I love the, uh, the, uh, I lost it, Jimenez, Jesus, just as much as I love the Jimenez art, uh, this book has been fantastic, so make sure you pick this up, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Failsafe Part 5 slash I Am A Gun Part 2. Failsafe has countered every move Batman and the Justice League have attempted. Is the Dark Knight out of options on Earth? The best-selling Failsafe art continues. In the backup, we travel back to the early years of the Dark Knight detective, revisiting his most psychedelic-slash-mind-breaking period and the dawn of his backup protection system, Zur N.R. So yeah, uh, this is some great Batman comics. You should be reading this for sure. Next up, we have She-Hulk number 7. This is written by Rainbow Roll with art by Luca Maresca. Uh, I love this book. If you enjoyed the She-Hulk uh, series, you need to be reading this book. It is so good. It is incredible. I've been loving it. Definitely pick it up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. After the earthquake that was She-Hulk number six, She-Hulk knows she has some work to do and a humdinger of a mystery to solve. You will not be able to predict what she finds. That is also something I've been really loving about this book. I love me a good mystery. I love it. This book has given it to us in spades. Next up, we have the new champion of Shazam number three. This is written by Josie Campbell with art by Doc Evan Shaner. I love this book so much and I am incredibly angry that we're only getting... Four issues of it. Still angry about it. Still angry about it. But I am loving the ride that we're on. Can't wait to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Chapter 3. Don't read the comments. 
After a disastrous outing as Shazam, Mary is the laughing stock of the internet. Will she ever be taken seriously? Now it's up to her to ignore the haters and help those who really need her. The missing persons problem in Philly has only gotten worse, and our hero is running out of time to find the culprit behind it. Yeah, I love this book. If you like good stories, if you like good comic books, read New Champion of Shazam. Enough said. Next up, speaking of good comic books, we have X-Men Red Number 8. This is written by Al Ewing with art by Maribek Muzabakov. Uh, this is the fallout of Judgment Day. There is a lot that we have to deal with following the events of that series. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Welcome to the World Farm. Cable springs his trap for Abigail Brand, but are her plans too big for even the Ascani son to handle alone? To foil a scheme stretching from the Soul System to the Shira Empire and beyond, the Soldier of Tomorrow is going to need all the help he can get from his very own X-Men Red. Cable's preparing a team. Can't wait to see who's on it. It's going to be great. But finally, the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up is... Gotham City Year One Number Two, written by Tom King, art by Phil Hester. This book, oh man, this book. Issue One was an absolute triumph, and I am so excited to continue on with this. Um, it's just, it's exactly my shit, and especially because I've been playing and loving Gotham Knights, I am in a big Gotham mood, so this is right up my alley. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Chapter 2. The bloody, bare-knuckled crimes series continues. A bruised and battered Slam Bradley finds himself embroiled in a shocking case as the infant heiress to the Wayne fortune has been kidnapped. But as with all things in Gotham City, nothing is what it seems. Can he solve the case in time to save a young life and secure the Wayne legacy, or will the secrets of Gotham bury them all? I love this so freaking much. I love Detective Noir. Uh, this is incredible. Can't wait to pick this up. But that does it for this week's comics countdown. To recap, we've got Dark Knights of Steel number 8, Deadpool number 1, Batman number 129, She-Hulk number 7, New Champion of Shazam number 3, X-Men Red number 8, and Gotham City Year 1 number 2. Now, don't let the small size of this list fool you. Every single book on this list is a heavy hitter. So make sure you go to your LCS this week and pick up some damn good comics. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and subscriptions and especially ratings and reviews really does help me out and really helps the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a rating and review, a five-star rating review on apple Podcasts, itunes whatever you want to call it i will read your review here live on the podcast you can write literally whatever you want i will be forced to read every single word as long as you give me those five stars the sky's the limit on what you can write and you'll be able to join the likes of our Red 13, including Seafire ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug Frem for Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, Alok and AZ, Sass, and Jedi Jesse 20. Want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. 
If you want to be part of the Geeksplain mailbag, send your emails to geeksplain at gmail.com and put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here on the show. If you'd like to stay up to date with the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news, you can follow us on the social medias, Instagram and Twitter at geeksplainedpod. That's at geeksplainedpod. I know Twitter is vastly and quickly becoming a hellscape thanks to its new management, but that is the place where I announce stuff. So for now, that is the place to go if you want to keep up to date with us. Finally, this Friday and every Friday, we have the Geek Explained Book Club, where I, alongside my amazing friends, Malcolm Russell Nelson and Jacob Brown, are going through every single issue of every single volume of Brian Michael Bendis's Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, this week, we are tackling volume three of Ultimate's Ultimate comic spider-man miles morales edition and there is some stuff that is happening in this volume it's oh man i have never had miles or at this point miles has never felt more part of the wider ultimate universe so far in this read so there's a lot of stress coming but it's a great time we do it every single friday and if you want to be part of the geek explain book club feel free to tune in with us. Spidey Fridays are a thing, so be there or be square, not a circle. But that does it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, it was something a little different. Uh, pro wrestling is a big part of my life, has been a big part of my life for a while. And with all the news surrounding Superman going on with the return of Henry Cavill and the 30th anniversary of the death of Superman, it all just kind of came together. And I was really excited to put this together. So if you enjoyed it, let me know. If you want me to do more pro wrestling adjacent episodes, let me know. Feel free, reach out, social media, email, would love to hear from from you but that is going to do it for this week's episode next week next week is going to be another one of our geek explained episodes where i will be explaining a fictional character right before they make their big screen debut next week we are diving into namor namor imperious rex i'm going to be giving you the full character uh really giving you the whole story of Namor in the comics. And trust me, you will not believe your ears when I tell you some of the shit this guy has been through. But since Wakanda Forever is coming out, premiering next week, I'm super excited about it. I know a lot of people are really excited about Namor. Uh, we're going to be diving into his character history as well as doing some uh, recommended reading if you're interested in learning more about the character before he makes his big screen debut. So tune in to that next week, same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for the Geek Explained podcast, I have been Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Everybody stay safe, and we will see you next time. 